I want you to open your Bibles primarily this morning. Our message will come from 2 Chronicles chapter 17. We were in 2 Chronicles last week, and I told you that as I'm reading through 2 Chronicles, there's just numerous illustrations for the New Testament church, things that were written then that we're going to read about now. Prior to actually beginning at 2 Chronicles, would you turn to Romans 15 and verse 4? I'd like to make a couple of comments there. Romans 15 and verse 4. Paul, in writing about what we call the Old Testament scriptures, he said this. He said, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. He said, these things that were written for our learning is so that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. I want to draw your attention to the word learning. These things were written for us not only to read, but to learn something. See, we as church folks, Christians, we tend to read the Bible as sort of a a duty, We don't gather a whole lot from it other than a memorization of stories and what happened to this king or that king or that psalm or this country or that country. And we're familiar with the facts, but we're not always learning. What is God showing you in a particular verse, a particular story? What do you see there that's more than just words on paper? What are you learning? What is coming into your heart and mind that is advancing you spiritually, maybe bringing growth or maturity. He said, these things were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, am I to understand this, that as I learn from what God is saying, that it does something for me now, like comfort, comfort, patience, Am I learning something by reading something? I should. Something should be revealed to me, in other words. If I understand what Paul wrote, he said, you know, the things that we're talking about in Romans was talking about things that had been said and done. He said, as I read that, I'm beginning to realize that God is doing something in my heart and in my life that's bringing me somewhere. I've got to grow. And I can only grow if I know, because he that knoweth groweth. And I can't grow if I don't really understand. So if I'm going to understand what God is saying, somebody's going to have to teach me. Because when I'm taught, then I'm learning. And when I'm learning, then I'm beginning to go, oh, I see that. I see it. Of course, now I am responsible for what I've heard. For he that knoweth and doeth not, to him it is sin. But he said, we might find hope. Does your Bible say at the end of verse 4 that we might have hope? Hope is expectation. Is it possible that as I read the stories in the Bible, illustrations that are shown from Noah's Ark to our story today, is it not possible that God can show me something like this, that what I did then I'll do now? If I did this for them, I'll do this for you. What I said then, I'm saying the same thing now because the word of God never goes away. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like Christ. 
that if I read that God blessed somebody in the Bible because somebody in the Bible did something, is it not true that if I do something, he'll bless me? Well, I take it that way. Maybe you wouldn't, but I would. So I'm beginning to learn, you know, as I read these stories, it's like, as I said, I'm reading through Second Chronicles in the morning. As I read the story, I begin to see things. The inspiration that comes from seeing things is this, that look, what God did then and what God said there, he's still saying he never changes. And if he did it then and he promised he would do it then, he'll do it now. In fact, all the promises that we have in the Bible, there's several thousand of them, they're all yes and amen. He didn't say in the Old Testament that I will bless you when you go out and bless you when you come in, or I'll heal you of your pains and your diseases and your sickness. I'll cover you with my blood and surround you and protect you and keep you. He didn't just say that to a generation that's gone and not say that to us, because if he said it to them, he's saying it to me. Because the promises never go away. Some people think, well, that was for them. It's for me. He said all the promises, the only promises that he could write of in 2 Corinthians when he wrote that, the only promises he could refer to were Old Testament promises. There was no New Testament written yet. And so when he was writing to these churches about all these promises, he was in Romans 15, 4. Those things he said then are still true today. We're not under the law anymore. You cannot keep a set of rules and make yourself right with God. You can only be right with God by believing what Jesus did. So he set aside one and brought about a new way. And with it, he said, all these promises that God has made are all in Christ. Yes. Yes. And amen. And you're never being deceived if you're believing God. But I'll tell you something. When you read the scriptures, one of the things that happens when it's inspiring is it creates faith. It does something on the inside of you. We call it hope. But something reaches out and says, you know what? God will do that for me. That's why the definition given of faith in the Bible is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is what gives reality to what you're expecting to happen. And let's face it, churches are full of people that really don't expect anything to happen. They go to church, that's their duty. It's the ritual. But as far as these things coming to pass and working for you, they don't believe that. And that's a problem. You see, the power that is in the word has not found its place in the heart Concerning the power of the word, in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says that when the king speaks, where the word of the king is, there is power. Where the word of the king is, there is power. Now, I can't think of anybody who is more of a king than Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, it says that when Jesus spoke, it says the people that heard him speak were astonished for his word was with power. It did something. It had an effect upon the people that heard it. They couldn't casually listen to the word when it comes in power and remain the same. You've got something to think about. 
Do you know in Hebrews chapter 1, what a statement made in Hebrews 1, it says, describing Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory, Jesus with his Father God, who being the brightness, Jesus, of his glory, and said, and the express image of his person. And the word for person is a word for substance in the definition of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Well, Jesus is the very substance, that which gives reality to who God is. We see it in Christ, who is the express image, the impressed. When you see Jesus, you have seen God. He said that, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he was the express image of his Father. And it goes on to say that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Here's what I believe. If we as people can gather together and have some degree of expectancy. I'm not here aimlessly this morning because it's a Sunday morning. I'm here because something in me compels me to go. I must listen and I must believe that what I'm going to hear is going to be something God's going to show me. Otherwise, nobody in this room will learn anything. And if we don't learn, we don't know. If we don't know, we don't grow. And we have just gone to church and had a religious exercise. So we want the power of God, the power of his word. To find its place into our hearts so that what we hear begins to do a work in us. I do want that. I want the word that God has spoken to do in me what he said it would do. And I want it to do out of me what he said it would do if I would believe it. Don't you? Oh, the devil fears that. Now, Second Chronicles 17. Concerning the title of the message today, When the Word is Alive. When the word is alive. You got a good picture of it here. Most of you are familiar with the story of Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat's father was Asa. We looked at Asa last week. Some things about his life. Things the Lord shows us about Asa. And why things worked for him. And why things didn't at the end work so well for him. We see it. It's the way it is. Now, Jehoshaphat, his son, comes along. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was 35 years old when he became king. He had had some good learning from his father, Asa. He reigned 25 years. He died at age 60, I suppose. I don't know why they didn't live any longer than that, but most kings didn't. The oldest one I can find out from studying this week, the oldest king I can find out of is David. He only lived 70 years. That's not very old. 70. Man, you're just getting really robust at 70. But anyway, he was a good man. And the Bible tells us why Jehoshaphat was said to be a good man or a kind man or whatever. And he wasn't perfect. Like all these kings that we read of in Chronicles, all the ones that are described that he did well or he did good in the sight of God, they all had to be visited by a prophet. Remember, Asa was twice last week. So was Jehoshaphat, just like David was visited by Nathan. None of them were perfect. And we're supposed to see that. Just as we saw, as James wrote, Elijah was just like us, a man of like passions as we are. 
And yet he was able to speak and God would honor his word. Well, he'll honor yours too. Whatever you bind on earth, God said, will be bound in heaven. If you allow it, you don't do anything about it. God won't do anything about it either. You have authority. We'll get to that again in a minute. But Jehoshaphat, it says in verse 6 that his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. I don't know if you can do better than that. His heart was not lifted up in the ways of his denomination or his church bringing upping, whatever that is. But his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. How that happened with him, we need to know. Why was his heart so lifted up? And many, many kings' heart wasn't lifted up. Why is Jehoshaphat so different? And he was. He was a man that the Bible says he had a great zeal, not only for God, but he had a zeal for his people. Now, the picture that I want to try to show you this morning is... As New Testament people reading these Old Testament stories, I see a picture here of the end time church, of the end time body of true believers that are blessed as they go out, that are blessed as they come in, that everything they put their hands to will prosper. I like success and prosperity. God promised that to Joshua. Remember in Joshua, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you'll have good success wherever you go. That's promised. Or it shall be well with you and your children after you. That's a promise. Shouldn't it be like that? Well, don't shout me down. It should be like that. We're not reading stories this morning that are just printed for our pleasure and for our entertainment. These stories have the stamp of divinity on them that God has already put this word on the walls of heaven. It'll never turn away. This is forever settled. And what he said then, he says today. This is what God watches over to perform. That's what he does. And we read this and we think, well, then he'll do it for me. I said that a while ago. And he'll do these same things for us. Now, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 17. The Bible tells us that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. What if we could say this? The Lord was with the preacher. Shouldn't it begin there? The Lord was also with the congregation. What if the Lord was with us, favoring us, as we meet together, as we go out and go into our daily life, what if everything you put your hand to prospered? What if God was so with you that you were blessed and other people knew it? And when you came together, you brought that blessing together. What an atmosphere. What a wonderful climate that would be to meet in and praise the Lord, especially to learn it. It'd be easy to teach people in that kind of an atmosphere. It is very difficult when people don't expect anything to happen. When we go to church and hear a word, maybe that's not a lie, but a word that's just dead. I think you can get very theological and be hammered dead because it's nothing more than a letter. But when the word becomes alive, it means it's found its way into your heart. It has inspired you. 
and you're beginning to get glad about it. Like it says, he has made me glad. He put his word in my heart. He opened my eyes. He has refreshed me. He has made me to see what he is saying because if he doesn't open my eyes to behold these things, I'll never see them. I can't learn if I don't see. But boy, when my eyes are open and I begin to see what he is saying, you're one of those people that can sing, though none go with me, still I will follow. Because you're not in a herd anymore. It's you and God. And you want the very best in your life that God has. I think Jehoshaphat was that way. And the Bible said the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he went to church, he sang in the choir, he gave his money, he helped with all the chores, and he went on missionary trips. That's what most people think. Well, if you don't do something, God isn't with you. So you have to do something. You have to be active in some way to have God with you. Now, here's why the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Verse 3. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because. He clearly says, because he walked in the first ways of his father David, sought not after idols or Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. He did four things. You can read them for yourself. He had a heart for the Lord. He made a decision. He determined not to walk in a way that God judged the northern tribes for. He didn't seek after idols. An idol is anything that draws your devotion and allegiance away from God to anything else. Anything that gets your best time and your attention and your heart and your affections and your devotion is an idol. Whether it's your children, school, your job, your career, or who you think you are. Everything was pale in the light of God. Obviously, obviously Jehoshaphat learned that. Somebody taught this man. He didn't just grow into the family of a king and suddenly know everything right. Nobody knows what to do unless they're taught. You've got to be taught. Somebody has to show you something. And if you have no interest like in spiritual things, you'll never be any different than you are. Good intentions, maybe, good ideas, but you'll never change. But a man changes when he wants to learn. He wants to be taught, and Jehoshaphat wanted to learn. And the Bible said that he walked in the first ways, verse 3, he walked in the first ways of his father David. What would he know about the first ways of his father David? Did somebody teach him that? Do you reckon somebody showed him why God blessed David, his great, great, great grandfather? Do you suppose that Jehoshaphat, when he was young and eager and learning, maybe his mother did it. They have more influence on us than anybody in the formative years of our life. Maybe she was a student of scripture. Maybe she listened to the priests. They didn't have Bibles where they could read the priest did. The priest did all the teaching. Maybe she heard a priest one time talk about David. Maybe God inspired her heart because as a mom, you're going to instill these truths into your sons. Maybe that's how he learned. Maybe as a king, one of the priests came by and said, let me tell you about your great, 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 great grandfather. Let me tell you why God blessed him. In the early days, in David's first ways, he could do no wrong. He blamed nobody for his mistakes. 
He was never a victim. He took the blame himself. And David, powerful warrior that he was, I mean, he was a man of war for sure. He killed a lot of people. But he sat on a lot of hillsides and sang to God. Today that might be a little soft for some people, but there he was, that powerful warrior up there on the hillside, singing and worshiping God. Now God blessed him. Look, Jehoshaphat, that's the kind of man David was. And if he did that for him, he'll do that for you. Would you turn to Deuteronomy 17? Keep your finger here and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. A part of the law was that when a king came to his throne, when he became a king, that he was required as the new king to write for himself a copy of the law in the presence of the priest. That was a lot of writing, five books. And this was a law. Verse 14, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and you possess it, you shall dwell therein, and I will set a king over you, like unto all the nations that are about us. Now, this is what this king will do. He said, verse 15, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose from among the heathen. Don't do that, but from your own brethren. He shall not multiply wives unto himself and all those kind of things. But this is what that he shall do. Verse 18. When he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priest, the Levites. Notice verse 19. This is what a king, a leader, a ruler has to do. If his kingdom is going to be good. It says, and it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life. For this reason, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. To keep all the words of the law and of these statutes to do them. Now this is what that will keep from happening in his life. It will keep his heart from not being lifted up above his brethren and viewing you all as just less than who you really are. Just a bunch of people coming to church. No, 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 no. He will begin to see your value to God and his responsibility to lead you. You got to have that. He goes on. And that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left hand to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom. He and his children after him. You got a promise there for a leader, for a king. King, when you come into the land, get your eyes off the luxuries and the possibility of the life of luxury. For your responsibility is to lead these people to go before them, to lead them out, and to bring them in. They are my people. They are not to be abused. They are not to be taken advantage of or try to use them for your glory or for your good. Each one of them is personally called out of darkness to God themselves, just like you were, king. Now, if you want to be able to do with them and for them what I want you to do, here's what you must do first. You write yourself a copy of this law. Write. They didn't have computers. So he had to write. 
And the priests would watch and make sure he spelled everything. I'm sure they did. And every jot and every tittle. And I'm sure that he wrote all these things down. And I am sure that some of the things that he wrote, he said, what does that mean? And they would explain it to him. Now, but he had a heart for this because the Bible said his heart was lifted up in the ways of God. And so he would read these things as he would write them down. And as he began to do these things, God began to deal with Jehoshaphat's heart. And the Bible said as a result, he walked in the first ways of his father David. He didn't turn to the idols. He didn't abuse people. He honored God with his life, and he walked in the commandments of the Lord. How did he know what those commandments are? Because he wrote them down. And he had them explained to him. That's what teachers do. They explain. We can't know anything the Bible really says or what it really means unless God reveals it to us. Like he said in Ephesians 1, that God would give to you in the church a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened or illumined so that you can know. Because if you don't know, you can't walk in all the way that God has. We can't even serve the Lord if we don't know what he says. We can, as a church, make up a bunch of our own rules and regulations. We can have good opinions and do it man's way, what the average church does. But we can never have his favor. We can never have that favor resting upon us unless our hearts are inclined to serve God. And that's something that God does to people that really want to serve him. He puts those kind of things in your heart. That's what he does. So he was obviously inspired. And as a result, verse 5, Therefore the Lord established or established the kingdom in his hand. What do you suppose, without knowing any more about it than that, what does it mean for a kingdom to be established? I don't think a kingdom is established necessarily because you rule by force. We see that in a lot of countries today in the world where the people are terrified at the rulers. They dare not make a false move. They'll die for it or get thrown in prison. But I don't think that's what God wants to be established. I want all the people to be free. Everybody here to know that you're free. That you're not bound to follow any man. But when God puts leadership in front of you, and it seems to be honorable, then you can follow it. As long as they speak according to the word of God. I don't know any man that is always right. I think every man I've ever known that preached at some point in his life had to change something he had prior said because he saw it in a better light as he grew older. That's okay. That's just being human. But the word of God that inspires the leadership is also to inspire the people so that as the man in front is free, the people he's standing before free. You're not afraid. You don't have to be afraid of making a mistake. Oh, if I don't walk this out, somebody will talk about me. It shouldn't be like that in the church. We've all had different levels of growth. Some people are here and some people are here. Some people would never take a medicine or go to a doctor. Some people, they aren't there yet for whatever reason. That's why we teach. That's why we don't want to condemn everybody that doesn't do things the way I do it, bless God. 
but you want to teach. And the reason you teach is the same reason that Jesus taught in Mark chapter 6. In verse 5, it says in Mark 6, he could there in his own hometown do no mighty work except lay his hands on a few sick folk and heal them. And the Bible said he marveled at their unbelief. But in verse 6, it says, then he went about all the villages round about teaching. Who wants to hear the word of the Lord? And God himself, the great teacher, as he would go in these villages and he would teach. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and had a recording or two? Why was he teaching the people? So they could believe. So the word that God has for us could bring hope to them. That they could begin to expect God to do what God said. That it can be better than it is. I want to come to a place where I don't want any medicines. I don't want treatments. I don't want anything like that. I just want God to be in charge and in control because I know that he is faithful. And then there's folks that say, well, I'd like that too, but I don't know if I'm there yet. Teach them. While there's some in the church that can't stand the fact that some people aren't doing it their way. Keep teaching, pastor. Keep teaching. Just stay on them. Lean on them a little bit. Kind of kick them every now and then. Just a little like that. But teach the people. Make sure they don't fall asleep and give up and quit on you. Amen. Make sure the ones that are wavering, it happens a lot with young people. You're so influenced by the world and the system and the whoo, and it's hard to come into church and realize that the church is all about a cross and dying and overcoming. <laughs> and so you have to be patient with people because what God said he will do, he will do it. You just have to be patient, but keep putting that word out. That's the way it works. This is the way I've seen it works. He went about teaching, Jesus said. Everywhere he went, he taught. He wanted the people to believe. Would it be right for me to say, I want all of you to believe? Until no matter what crisis or circumstance or problem that anybody faced, that the first thought in your mind is, I'll turn to God and he'll take care of it. Wouldn't that be good? Instead of start thumb-talking somebody on that gadget. Oh, help. I'm about to go under. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. We're going to keep teaching. You're going to get mad, but that's part of the deal. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. Just keep bringing your Bible. Keep listening because God has something for you. I think essential to our peace and the defeat of agitation is to be established. To know that what God puts here, he has sovereignly brought here. And what he has brought here, he has brought here for a divine purpose. That he has left out nothing that he has for us. He wants all of us to learn his ways. Teach me thy way, O Lord. Why? So that I can walk in thy truth. But the kingdom was established 
A whole lot of how a church functions and the way it's supposed to function is a whole lot of the relationship between authority and the folks in the church. If you can't relate to somebody, then he's just somebody you admire and brag about, but you don't know who he is. Turn to Rehoboam. Turn to chapter 10. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He was the fourth king in Israel. You had Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. Rehoboam was the king's boy. How would you like to have been Solomon's son? As far as carnality is concerned. I mean, dad's got a thousand concubines and who knows how many wives. He's got thousands of horses, camels, sheep. He has more than anybody has ever had or will ever have on this earth. He had it all. And what about his son? Wow. Rehoboam, he inherited all of that. Now, he was young. He didn't really know what to do, how to start out. So he asked for counsel. A wise man will. But he asked, first of all, counsel from the older men who had grown up with his father Solomon and had been in his kingdom. And they had good advice for him. Then his other crowd was his rock and roll crowd that doesn't shave, doesn't comb his hair, shirt tails out, shoes are untied, in blue jeans. That's his other crowd. Now, the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 10 and verse 6, And King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men. I wish he wouldn't say old. But King Rehoboam took counsel with the mature <laughs> folks in the kingdom that had stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, saying, What counsel do you give to me to return answer to this people? And what he said in verse 7, I wrote down in the front of my Bible as a guideline for anybody, anybody who wants to lead or proclaim the gospel. He said this. If you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. Is there anything wrong with that? It all depends on maybe the words that are kind or liberal words or non-me. He's not talking about that. There's always the people who just want to entertain and make everybody comfortable and everybody happy by just saying good stuff and never telling the truth. He's not talking about that. If you would treat people as human beings, if you would be fair to everybody, give the benefit of the doubt when they need it. As much as you can, put yourself in their shoes and try to see where they're at so you can know how to teach those people to bring them out of that. If you will see people like that, and you'll speak kindly to them, and speak good words, the words good and kind are the same Hebrew words. If you will speak good words or you'll speak kind words, he said these people will be your servants forever. Is that true? Let me ask you a question. Would this be an ideal for a church? What if this church was like that? What if everybody had confidence in the fact that we're free to learn? We're free to, to put things together for ourselves without being condemned by others who don't agree with us, Romans 14. And we're learning, and I feel confident that God's going to teach me and lead me, and, and the people that I'm not really like yet are also encouraging and helpful to talk to me. Wouldn't that be good? I mean, the whole New Testament's full of it, about encouraging one another, speaking a word in season, word seasoned with grace. 
This is the way it should be amongst us. We're here to help each other and to care for each other. It's a New Testament church that I'm talking about that I'm seeing in this particular story here. Because he said in verse 7, if you'll do this, these people will be your servants forever. So he turned to his rock and roll crowd. The guys with their hat on sideways. Trying to be cool. What do you all think? I should? He said, man, I'll tell you what I'd do. <laughs> I'd make it tough on them. Oh, hey, you can't lead being soft. If you want to be in charge, man, you got to be tough. You can't give these people room to grow. Tell them this is the way or no way. Get out of here. Do that. You know what happened when he actually took their counsel and that's what Rehoboam said? The kingdom split. This is where the kingdom became 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. The split kingdom. All because of the counsel of a bunch of hoodlums. I mean, of, of a younger jet set that didn't know anything about how to treat people. And they said, we're done with you. We're going to the north. This is why a really bad guy, Jeroboam, he came back and took over the north. And it was a war forever until the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and took them away. They never stopped fighting. They got into war one day and 500 thousand men died in one battle i don't know how many men that is that's almost like the city of louisville dying in one battle by their brothers i mean everything was wrong attitudes were wrong hearts were wrong because leaders were wrong and the reason they didn't come back to Asa was because they, by this time, Jeroboam had given them so many idols to worship. It was so much rock and roll in the north. They didn't want to go back to those old routines. They quit all of that. They set their own church up in Samaria, their own headquarters. They appointed priests who was popular. They didn't have to be Levites. Man likes it that way because he's in charge of what he thinks is right. He says his own doctrine, develops his own theology. And the people like that because it's cool. And as a result, they all died. They were carried away horribly, captured and abused by the Assyrians. But that was their choice. They were warned time and time and time again. You see, if we want to please the Lord, like he said, if you please these people, then you live according to what God said. It doesn't mean you cow town to error or false or you let the devil run you around. You know what you believe and you teach the truth. Though none go with you, still you'll follow. So you don't give yourself to be ruled by anybody, but you don't try to make people follow you because you're smart. But they will follow you, as he said, if you speak good words to them, and so on and so forth. So the people, I think, respected and honored Jehoshaphat. Go back to chapter 17. Because in verse 7 through 9, this is how Jehoshaphat cared about his people. Does he care about his people? This is what he did. Then he sent amongst all of his people in the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes in the south, he sent amongst all of his people teachers. 
Now, these teachers were under the oversight of the princes. These were the masters of the land as far as, as organization and, and outstanding men. And he said in verse 7, And in the third year of his reign, he sent his princes even to Ben-Hale, to Obadiah, Zechariah, to Nathaniel, and to Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. He could have just said in the New Testament, Joe and Fred and Bill. <laughs> and eight, And with them, he sent Levites, even to Shemaiah, and Nathariah, and Nathaniah, and Zebediah, and Asheel, and Shemira, Moth, and Jehonathan, and Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. What did they do? They taught. Let me ask you a question. Why, of all the things, the crops and the gold to be dug, and why teach? Because unless we know whom we're serving, we have nothing. They taught. How'd they do it? I don't know. But these guys who were in charge, everybody knew them. You talk about a million and a half, two million people. And somebody organized them. We're coming over there. Get the people there. We're going to teach. And everybody got together. And here came these Levites with their scrolls. And the people were sitting down. And they began to open up. And they began to declare the things of God. They didn't talk about the prophets because the prophets were still going. All they had was the first five books of Moses. The Psalms are still being written, I suppose. They had been written by David. So they just took the first five books of the Bible. And they began to teach. They went through all of those bigats. And they begin because these are declarations of God of exactly what is right. And they begin to teach. I hope the people had a chance to ask questions. And I would like to think as they were being taught, then they would get aside. And they would talk about what they heard. And they were inspired to know more about it. What did that mean? How does that work like that? There was a really wonderful, great king in Second Chronicles. I'm sure we'll get to it if I stay on this Second Chronicles thing. His name was Josiah. What a wonderful king he was, a young man. He came to the Lord and he came to his kingship. And one day, he's a teenager by this time, he was having the temple cleaned out and restored. He wanted to get the worship back in order. All godly kings cared about worship, all of them. There was none that didn't. Worship was vital. Worship was vital. Josiah began to clean up all this, and somebody found the scrolls. They found the, the word of the Lord. It had been hidden all his life. And they brought them to him. He couldn't read it. He said, tell me what it says. And as they began to read the books of Moses, he tore his clothes. You know what he said? He said, this is what's wrong with us. We have forsaken this. And then he brought about a great reformation amongst the people. He was a great king. But that's what the word is supposed to do. It doesn't do that to everybody. See, I, I do believe in election. I believe that God sovereignly calls to him those who will be his. 
from the foundation of the world, he established that, Ephesians 1. And I believe that everybody that he brings to him, he will instruct them. Their eyes will be opened. They will begin to see what he is saying. And it will have an influence on their life and on their heart. And what that does, I guess always, it draws that person to God. And they want to know more. It's that spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Peter, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed to you what you just told me about who I am. But my father in heaven has shown you that. No human, no matter how gifted, theologically pristine he may be. Nobody can do what God does. Only God can anoint the heart to see what he is saying. And without that, if there's no anointing on our service or on your hearts this morning, not much will happen. We'll go out of here much the same as we came in. Because you go back to the beginning of the sermon, there's a lack of hope. We're not inspired to expect Well, healing, you know, is good, but you know, it's going to be the way. It doesn't have to be like that. Devil has no right to do what he does while we wonder if God will ever do what he said he would do. The problem's us. The problem is on our side. He sent these priests out to teach these people, and they must have explained what the Bible said. And they said it means this. And it means that. This is what it's supposed to do. And look at this story here. And they would listen to these things and they would get inspired. I want to be inspired. Don't you three boys want to be inspired? Amen. (laughs) Grandsons, you ought to want to be inspired. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every time we came together to meet, God showed us something more new? Or fortified something old that we would, yes, if that's proper to do it that way. Maybe, yes. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we look forward to going to a meeting, to hear the word of the Lord, and then to proclaim it with, whoo, glory to God. It's okay to do that, isn't it? The word should do that. It should do that in all of our hearts. And I'm sure I would like to think that that's what happened when they went out teaching. I believe that Jehoshaphat had this philosophy or this idea or this inspiration. You know, God has blessed me because the Bible said Jehoshaphat prospered in everything he did. He had it great. Very few people prospered more than Jehoshaphat did. And it doesn't say he tried to get more until the end of the chapter. But he just served God and God calls his enemies. I mean, all these Moabites, Amorites from the east side of the river, they become dragging all them camels and sheep and coming over there to Israel. And folks say, where are you going? I'm going over to Israel. With all your animals? Yeah. Why are you doing that? I don't know. I don't know. I better. I just don't know why. And here comes Jehoshaphat. You know, he's in here reading his book, and he hears all this noise outside. He looks out, and here comes 
Abdul somebody with all those animals and they come and somebody runs into him and says, here's another load. You got another load. You got any room over in your fairgrounds? And he said, well, put them back there in the back 40. I, you know, we've got 40 or 50,000 camels already back there. Uh, yeah, put them back there. And the Bible said people brought him these things. And all the time they were teaching, nobody tried to cross their borders and make war with them. Can you imagine? They probably knew. Well, they're having a Bible study. Now's a good time to invade them. They couldn't. There's something bigger in our life than our common sense. It's God. And while these people are having a meeting and trying to learn the Bible, and they're not out there guarding their borders, these enemies of theirs were terrified of them. They drew back, and they wouldn't make war with Jehoshaphat. And he wasn't trying to be tough. He wasn't trying to be mean and, and rugged. He just simply wanted his people to know what he knew so they could be blessed the way he was blessed. So that the whole bunch of them were at peace and had some degree of prosperity amongst all of them. That's what he wanted. And you read in this book that as long as they studied and sought the Lord, no man made war against them. The Syrians wouldn't come down from the north, and the, again, the Moabites, and no other, Ixticks, none of them would invade Israel. You know what? There's something here for us. There's something here for us. Some people are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Won't you just get your heart right with the Lord, put God first, and let God take care of your enemies? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I like for the devil with all of his designs against me or you. I like for him to go. <laughs> we can't touch him. Is that possible? I have one man in the Bible had it. The devil complained to God about, well, yeah, you got that hedge about him. Well, a hedge would work for Job because Job was a godly man. First book of the Bible, oldest book in the Bible. I think, well, if God would do that for him, you'd do that for me. If my ways please the Lord, maybe he stays out of my life as much. You know, there's some things that are probably necessary. But I don't think the devil has a right to just come along anytime he wants to invade your life and make you miserable. And you say, well, I'm an overcomer. I'll just, sometimes you need to fight. Sometimes you need to say no and put the devil in his place. I'm glad in this world, I just finished the book. I'm glad in this world for all those martyrs in the world and all those saints in other countries that are not afraid of persecution. They've endured great persecution and torture. And I was on the end of reading this book and I thought, do you people with all of your zeal and your deep devotion to God, do you know anything about warfare? Has anybody ever taught you about your deliverance from all of that stuff, about the power of the name of Jesus? Is it possible that in some of the cases that when the enemy comes in that the name of Jesus might have stopped him? That would have been a wonderful testimony too. For the people to be inspired, not by how much... Pain and torture you can take, 
but the fact that God will deliver us from a lot of this stuff. Some things are a test and a trial. We got to be proven who we are and where we are. Some things are nothing more than an attack from the devil. And they usually come because of a door that's been opened. But maybe we keep teaching and God will open your eyes and you'll see that and you can deal with it. I don't want the devil coming around my house, around my kids or my wife or I, start robbing, cheating, denying us. I don't think I have to put up with that. Now, see how quiet it is now? This is what I believe. The Bible says don't give place to the devil. James 4 says if you resist the devil, what will he do? Complain? He'll flee from you. Why would he flee from you? Because you're depending on God who you turn to for your power and your might. I can do all things through Christ who what? And therefore, he's the one who in honoring his word causes the devil to stay back. Amen. A little something came up, a little minor something. You know, God calls our trials light and momentary afflictions. Light and momentary. And a little light momentary something came up. And I remember at the moment I said, I rebuke you. And I thought, wait a minute. Let me go better. Let me go a step higher than that. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And you know what? It was just moments. It was gone. I said, I'm not going to. You're messing with the preacher. I just simply said, I'm going to humble myself as Moses did and said, the Lord whom I trust, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And he was gone. I don't think the devil has a right to do whatever he pleases with anybody in this room. We give place to the devil. And that opens doors to him. But we also have the right not only to close those doors, but to stand our ground and proclaim the truth. What power is there this morning in the name of Jesus? What power is in the name of Jesus? Or how many times has a difficult situation been corrected because you said the blood of Jesus? That was before you read the article that you can't do that. Well, how can you say the blood of Jesus? They didn't do that in the Bible. Well, you know, reading the Old Testament, what we're doing this morning, I read him once in Exodus chapter 12, that on the doorpost of Egypt, the Israelites were instructed to take that Passover lamb and put blood over the doorpost and over the threshold. He said, when the death angel came by and came through Egypt, when he saw the blood, he could not enter the house and bother anybody there. The power of the blood of a lamb, you get the picture, was overwhelming to the devil. He couldn't touch him. Well, why don't we think like that today? Oh, boy, here comes another trial. Well, I can do it. I can do it. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. Once you roll your sleeve up, wad that thing up on the end of your arm. Grab a hold of a sword. What's the sword called? The word of God, and grab that other thing with the other hand that is called the she, she, shield of faith. What does the shield of faith do? Quenches what? Quenches what? 
So then all these fiery darts of the devil that he's throwing at God's people, you don't have to be stung by all of them, do you? See, there's something about getting your eyes opened and seeing what God is saying and then being inspired to trust him for that. You know what? I love the verse in Psalm 91, my assurance policy. About everybody's talk about the need for insurance today and oh, what are we going to do? But, you know, it's good to know that with long life, God will satisfy me. I will not lose my mind. There's no satisfaction being mindless. And as we grow older, we will live our appointed time satisfied. And the enemy who comes in to try to warp and tear everything, not going to let you do it because there's been a time in my life somebody taught me, whether it was through tapes, what are tapes? But in the old days when tapes came, and now these plastic discs that come in, and in the few meetings in the country that are left, God is still speaking to his people. And the things he says... I can't always tell, but I hope that in all of your lives, as you listen, there's something in there going, yes, 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 Lord. I mean, you don't have to sit there and go, yes, yes, yes. You can sit there very quietly and go, mm. but on the inside, you're going, yes. You just got blessed. Every time that word inspires you and stirs you up, you just got blessed. And you can't say, well, nothing's going on. Yes, it is. Something in my heart, like a stream running free, boom, 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 makes me feel so happy. Something is going on. I mean, something is being rooted deeper. Something is getting established. Something is getting ready to come forth. It is all about God. And when Jesus comes, this is who he's looking for. Because there's something about it. No wonder the Bible says, teach me thy ways, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Paul said to Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. No wonder in 1 Timothy 4, those wonderful end of that chapter where if you will give yourself to this and this and this and to doctrine and will teach, you will not only save yourself, but all those that hear you. What effect is God going to have on people when it starts here with learn, study, and then impart? And the people who receive such impart, what happens to us? We're saved. What's better than that? You can't go beyond that. Listen, nothing will ever happen to you in this life that is greater than God saving your soul. And securing you, establishing you, and as a good Calvinist would say, he will preserve you and he will keep you. He has engraven you, Isaiah said, on the palms of his hands, and he will never forget you, and no man can pluck you out of his hands. I don't know anything that equals that. Amen. Now, the end of the story, which you all know, and I'll close with this.
because you're already familiar with this story. These people have been taught. They know what they believe now. A whole nation. They probably learned of the power of God. How many of you have ever heard of Brother Andrew? A Bible smuggler years ago. He came to a checkpoint in Russia, I think it was one time, and his car was filled with Bibles. This is instant prison time. He had to stay in prison for four lifetimes with all, all these Bibles in his car. There's no other way to get over it, but you know what his face said? His mind said, well, you can't get all those in this country. I mean, you can't do this. You know what his heart said? God will close their eyes. I don't need to cover. I'm not even going to cover them up. I'm not going to pack them. I'm just going to leave them laying out there. Holy Bible. And I'm in the front seat, back seat, everywhere. And Father, I ask you to close their eyes in Jesus' name. Do we have that kind of authority? Amen. Whatever you bind on earth. So you know what happened? They came to the checkpoint. They came over to his car. And, who are you? Let me see who you are. All right. What's all of this? Is reading material. Opened it up. I mean, I've read the story. It's wonderful to read. Look at the Bible. Holy Bible. Okay. Put them back in the car. Go. You know why they couldn't read it? You know why they couldn't tell what it said? Because God blinded them to see that. Just like when the jail doors opened. Remember when the jail doors opened in, in the book of Acts? Paul and Silas been in there having a praise meeting. You always get praise when you get power. Remember that. They were in there praising the Lord. And all of a sudden the doors opened. The shackles fell off. Remember that? Yes. And the guard standing at the door like this. Sergeant of arms, big stripes. <laughs> and another guy crossed the way with spears. And these guys are trained to kill. And they walk out. And here's one standing right here. Guarding the prison. And you come out like this. <laughs> they look right at you and could not see you. It happened in your Bible. It's to inspire us to know that nothing is impossible with God. What do you believe? Oh, I won't know if that happened today. It's because you don't believe. You need to read this. Man. Brother Andrew just said they picked up the Bibles. They looked at them. They didn't know what it was. All of them could read, but they couldn't read that. He drove on into the country, took those Bibles to all those people. Power. There is power in a word that is alive in a believer's heart. So in 2 Chronicles 20, please go over there and we'll close. Oh, this is a whole sermon. This is a whole message. I'll just brief it for you. Oh, I don't like briefing this, but... Jehoshaphat had just messed with Ahab to the north, made an alliance with King Ahab. He was a bad guy. One of Ahab's daughters, Athaliah, married one of his grandsons. And when her son came to the throne, she killed all of his kids so she could rape. She's a bad woman. So Jehoshaphat, he made an alliance with this guy and helped him in a battle, but it didn't work. That was when the arrow was shot and it hit Ahab. Remember, it came through his shield and he died well Jehoshaphat came back from that a prophet was waiting on it and you know what the prophet said to the king he said should you love those that hate the Lord Whoo! 
Well, that's not a good theological thing today, is it? Look at verse 2 of chapter 19. I, I got to throw this in because I won't preach on it next week. But he said, And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the ungodly and love those that hate the Lord? He said, Therefore, everything now is not going to work well for you. From here on, it's not going to work well. The leader messed up, and it began to mess up with the whole kingdom. Because it starts at the top if it's good. It'll start at the top if it's bad. If the leader goes bad, chances are the church will. If the leader goes right and honest and good, then the church will. It just works like that. So anyway, they came to him in chapter 20. And he said, you've got a whole bunch of people coming from Moab and Ammon. That's on the Saudi Arabia side, down near the Dead Sea, halfway down the Dead Sea. There's a passage there. They're coming down through there. Boy, there must be half a million to a million of these guys. And they're equipped for war. And here they come. And Jehoshaphat, the Bible said, he feared. Well, who wouldn't? But instead of panicking, because of what he had learned... The Bible said he turned to the Lord and he fasted and he prayed. Now I'm talking about learning now so I can close. And so they came to him and said, this army that's coming against you is about 10 miles south of here. What are we going to do? They began to pray. And you know what he prayed? He quoted 2 Samuel. He began to quote Solomon's prayer. He quoted what he had learned. He was still familiar with the promises that God had made. And he began to quote those promises that Solomon had made to him. He said, Lord, you said, Lord, he said, Lord, you gave us the land. You can read the prayer yourself. Lord, you gave us the land. The people that are coming against us to destroy us, we had a chance to invade them when you brought us out of Egypt. We could have eliminated them, but you wouldn't let us. Now look how they're rewarding us. They're coming in here to drive us away from your inheritance that you gave us. This is your land. We don't know what to do. We don't have any might against an army that big. But our eyes are upon you, Lord. And then he just stood there, I guess. And there's a young man in that place. I guess he was young. He had a good voice. Named Jehaziel. He was a prophet, I guess. And he prophesied, and he said in verse 14 and following, he said, you don't need to fight in this battle. At the end, he said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. What does that mean? It means you don't have to fight. You don't need to cower in the back of the crowd and see how the battle's going to go and then get ready to, to grab your kids and, how are we doing? Whoo, look how many soldiers there are. Honey, come over here. We get, let's get over here where we can go. You got the donkey saddle? Yeah, okay. That's how fast Mike Guthrie talks. <laughs> you know what? The whole church went out there to face their enemy, worshiping. But when they heard a prophecy, before they ever saw the enemy, they began to worship. It says, Jehoshaphat, in verse 18, he bowed his head. With his face to the ground and all Judah inhabitants of Judah fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Why? Let me ask you a question. Why were they worshiping God? The enemy was alive and well. The enemy wasn't dead. They hadn't seen the victory yet. 
They only heard a man say that they were going to win. They heard a man say, you don't need to fight. They heard a man say, go out tomorrow and meet them. A man said that, not a voice from heaven, a man. But you see, this church was connected. I mean, excuse me, this kingdom was established. They had confidence in each other. They knew each other. I imagine that Jehazel was a proven vessel when he spoke. They said, that's God. I don't know how this is going to work out yet, but that's God. Look at verse 20. Verse 19 are the spiritual people. They stood up to worship God. In verse 20, they rose early in the morning. They went out of the wilderness. They went down there to meet those people. And Jehoshaphat said, believe in the Lord your God. So shall you be established. Believe his prophets. So shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, the appointed singers, and it's always worship and singing. They went out before the army to praise the Lord when they did that. The army came up through that passage south of, in the desert there. And here were all these Jews worshiping. Men, women, their children. Nobody was fleeing. Nobody was guarding anything. They were there bowing their heads, singing Yadah, Halal, all these Hebrew words. Oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Glory to God, hallelujah. Woo! And the Bible said when the enemy came up through there, God set ambushments against them. For some strange reason, they began to kill each other. I guess one didn't like the way the other one was marching. I guess one didn't like the brand of the other one's boots. Maybe one didn't have his hair combed on the left side. Maybe he didn't like his haircut. And he probably turned around and said something to him, and he did. He stuck him. He said, you ain't getting by with that. So they started fighting. And the Bible said all that army, every one of them killed each other. When one got rid of one, they could turn on the other until here's the Jews having church while their enemy is killing himself and the devil sitting on the hillside saying, no, 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 no. Because he came up there to kill all these Jews and all of his subjects are being killed themselves. Are we to see something in all of this or is this just a fun story? I mean, is God showing us something that could be? Have we been lacking some way in how we're dealing with God and his word? They went back after the war that these people killed each other. They went down there with their carts and their mules and their donkeys and all the U-Hauls that they could rent. And they went down there and they started taking the spoil of all these people. There was so much spoil. There's so many people that died that had so much they brought into the war. It took maybe a half a million people three days just to carry it away. Would you say they were blessed? Without firing a shot, without drawing a sword. Nobody died in this battle. Nobody was wounded. No mother was crying because she lost a son. Nobody died. Everybody lived. There is no other battle in the Bible or in human history like that, I doubt. There was no other time in Israel's history that they were like that. Because I think this is a picture of the way God wants it to be with us 
and the power that can be infused into the church as God finds faithful people who believe him and his word. That's what I believe. Now, in closing, finally, do we not have a Bible? Is it not a declaration of what God says? You have to believe that. Because a lot of people don't think it is, but you've got to believe it. Is it not true that God watches over that word to perform it? That if I am willing to take him at his word, that he will do for me what he has said? All Jehoshaphat did was say, Lord, you said. He said in Isaiah 43 and verse 26, put me in remembrance. Most people can't. They don't know what God has said. They've either never been taught or never wanted to be taught. Church was a social hour, not a learning hour. And so when the enemy comes in like a flood, there's nothing inside of them that can fight the devil. They have no word. They have a wall full of stars for Sunday school service and and a pen over here, Sunday school pens. But they have no living Word and thus there is no power. Amen. How about you folks? Bow your head. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you this morning for your word, for the spirit that you send to teach us, for all the promises you've made to us, and for your willingness to do things for us. I stand before these who I will call your people. There are needs in this room. There are difficulties in this room, but there's always been amongst your people those who were needy more than others. And you didn't bring them here to reject them. In spite of all their sinful ways or in spite of their mistakes or in spite of their failures, You brought them here to show them your way. I ask in the name of Jesus that your word would not only inspire us, but do what it says, would bring us hope so that we never wake up another day with that depressed, hopeless feeling because depressed people, Lord, have no hope. So I ask you to bless us. Open our eyes and our heart to receive your word In Jesus' name, amen.